Welcome back to Misunderstood. Thank you for joining us again. I'm Rachel Yucatel, your host. Today, we're going to talk about something that affects everyone listening, relationships, and why they are so misunderstood. Whether or not you are single in a committed relationship or something in between, quite messy, uh, relationships are something that affect all of us and we want to know more about. So today we're going to find out why they're so misunderstood and why we have so many questions about them and why we can't seem to figure them out. Is it something that is just pure destiny, Think something that we can find online in a bar, or is there something that is a scientific study behind it? So we're going to answer questions like, is there something behind happiness? Is there something to why we should break up with somebody? Are there red flags we should be looking for? And I have somebody really fabulous here who's going to answer all these questions. Dr. Gary Lewandowski is here. He's going to talk to us on the science of relationships. He's an award-winning professor, researcher, writer, and he's an expert on relationships. So thank you so much for joining us. Yes, Rachel, thanks so much for having me. So the first thing I want to ask is out of just sure curiosity, how did you get into this line of work? <laughs> it, it was actually kind of an accident. Uh, as, as an undergrad, I wanted to be a clinician. Like a lot of undergraduate psych majors, I wanted to help people. I wanted to listen to people's problems and, and solve all the world's problems one person at a time. Um, but then I, I did an internship, decided I did not want to do that anymore. Um, and then I talked to my undergrad advisor and she's like, well, what is it that you like? And like most college students that are guys, I'm like, well, I like relationships. And I just kind of offhandedly said, but you can't study that. And she said, well, yeah, you actually can study that. And, and, and the rest of my career has been born from that. Hmm. So did you suffer with any successful or non-successful relationships of your own in the past that made you want to do this? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, like. Um, I had a little, I, it was a mixed bag, right? Like, so I definitely had some successes. I, ha I had some misses. I had some losses, um, you know, but like any college guy, like I spent most of my time trying to figure out how to get into relationships, how to get out of some, how to just kind of like navigate, you know, what do women really want? What do they not want? And, uh, it, it was, it was a struggle, but it was like one of those things that I was always really curious about. And I like thinking about. And so now I have just like the perfect career for that. I get to be nosy into people's lives. I get to ask them about like what might be the most important part of their life um, and get to learn about kind of what makes people's relationships tick, which is, which I find fascinating. And explain how there is a psychology behind it. How do people actually study relationships? Sure. So relationship science, um, it, you know, it's something I've been doing for over 20 years. It's a complicated thing because, you know, when you're talking about relationships, you're talking about more than one person. And so relationship science is one of those areas where we use probably every method under the sun to learn about people. And so we'll ask people self-report questions. We'll do interviews. We'll even run experiments and like randomly assign some people to like go on date nights and other people not to, um, you know, we'll even put people in MRI machines to see what their brain's doing when they're falling in love. And so there's lots of different things that we can do, but you know, fundamentally all research starts with a question. And so as long as people have questions about relationships, which uh, frankly seem endless, mm -hmm. uh, we're always gonna have things to research. But now how do you look at the people from like a ground zero perspective? Cause some people just, like I said, from the beginning have a bad picker like me, I'm a love addict, right? So I come uh -huh. from a different perspective than somebody who might be really well-rounded and grounded mm -hmm. and come from a totally different perspective than they have, you know, a, a different trajectory. Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, you know, one of the things that we have very much to our advantage when we're approaching this from a scientific perspective is we just have sheer numbers, mm -hmm. right? So in, rather than asking one person, two people, or even 10, we'll ask hundreds of people. And so once you start asking hundreds of people about any question, really, um, you're going to get a full range of people. You're going to get sort of like uh, most people are going to be average and then you can have people out at the edges. And so you're going to have some people who are really good, some people who struggle a little bit, but most people are going to fall somewhere in the middle. And so when we're doing relationship science or, and, and again, science of, of any sort, what we're really looking at is what makes most people successful most of the time. Mm -hmm. And have you found there's a difference in love in your 20s, let's say, and difference in your in love in your 40s and 60s? Yeah, a, a little bit. <laughs> yeah, 80, 100. Um, yeah, I mean, it, there's going to be some small differences. Um, in, in particular, you know, as as you age, as you mature, 
your preferences and how you fall in love change somewhat, right? So you're going to focus more on non-physical qualities and more on personality and character and compatibility. That said, um, you know, the similarities far outweigh the differences. And so what people are looking for in a relationship at 18 is largely what they're looking for in a relationship at 80. Uh, you know, I've, I've been doing some relationship coaching over the last year, and it's with a full range of folks in their 20s all the way up until they're in, into their 70s. And it's striking to me how the, the issues that the 70-year-olds encounter are some of the same issues that the 25-year-olds encounter. And, you know, particularly for women, it's, I want a guy who's taller than me. I mean, that is one of the most, you know, common bonds that it seems like all women have um, a, across the age spectrum. You think height is a big factor, really? It's oh, I, I mean, I would not have thought that, um, but it turns out to be like one of the biggest factors. Um, I mean, you talk to people who are doing a lot of online dating. One of their biggest pet peeves about men on online dating sites is just that they lie about their height because men kind of intuitively know that women find men who are six foot and taller attractive. And so, according to the women that that I coach, uh, you hear them saying, you know, this guy says he's six one and he shows up and he's five five. Mm. Uh, and so, you know, you, you get some of that for sure in the world of online dating. Well, but that might be that they're just more angry that they turn out to be a liar than that they're shorter than tall, don't you think? It's definitely a combination of both. Right. Um, you know, there, there's several women who, you know, are with guys who, you know, when they describe their relationship with this man, it's it's literally perfect. It, it's everything you would want in terms of compatibility, fun. He's a good listener. He's dedicated to personal growth and learning about her and supporting her. I mean, it, it checks every box, that relationship. And then you say, well, well, what's wrong? Like what's, what's going on? And she said, well, I mean, I'm embarrassed to say, but he's, he's on the short side. And so, you know, you definitely have that dynamic as well. Wow. Well, that's, that, that sounds like <laughs> it would be a shallow girl. So that's interesting that you say that though, because when I was in my twenties and I remember girls in our twenties, so I was working at Bloomberg News in my 20s. And I had a career. I was, you know, very driven, very resourceful. But I do remember, and all my friends were as well, you know, and I remember um, all of us were looking for a husband, you know, and that was our goal to really find a successful husband that worked on Wall Street, because um, those are the guys that we were meeting, right? And, um, but the goal was to get married and have a kid. And I remember thinking and talking to the girls and they were all saying, oh, we're getting so old. And we were in our early 20s and girls in their late 20s were saying, oh, we're getting so old. We haven't met anyone yet and feeling like that was too old. And they were aging out of finding a guy. And um, then when these girls did get engaged, um, they would quit their job and kind of lose their sense of self and become very unhappy. And later on in life, when you get into your 30s, I think you do realize it's really important to keep your job or to find a sense of self because it's not just about losing your identity to a guy. And it's really important to keep your, your sense of self because you want to come home at the end of the day. And the man wants to come home at the end of the day and find you attractive for some other reason than making dinner or looking good from going to the gym. I mean, don't you agree? I mean, I, I found that my qualities were not superficial as I got older. I wanted a guy who had a job who found me interesting for having a job as well. Do you know what I mean? Oh, absolutely. I mean, you know, Rachel, you're speaking my language, right? In terms of, you know, my own research is on how your self-concept, who you are as a person impacts your relationship. And so when you're talking about maintaining your identity, having your own identity, those things are absolutely important. Um, and, and so, you know, just to be clear, I mean, those women who are worried about height, I mean, they, they absolutely shouldn't be. I, I think they're also worried about some other things too, mm -hmm. um, and, you know, keeping their identity and all that kind of stuff. But I, I think, you know, I mean, have you ever heard people say this idea, and it's a very romantic notion, um, and it, it comes from a movie, but it's like this idea of like, I love my partner because they complete me, mm. right? There's this idea of like, you know, finding a partner that completes you, that that fulfills you up like that is the ideal. Um, and just frankly, I think that's like one of those blind spots. And I talk about a lot of blind spots in my book, but like, this is one of those things where it's your partner shouldn't complete you. Right. You should be a complete, full, glorious person all on your own. Your partner is there to cheer you on, highlight your strengths, support you, all of those types of things. 
right? It, it's not that you have some hole in you that your partner needs to, you know, complete in some way. Right. Well, that becomes so dangerous, right? Because if you're having a bad day, it's it becomes your partner's mission or problem to fill you up. Or if your partner fails in some way or is having a hard day or needs to be filled up, you can't sometimes be there for them. So when you make it somebody else's issue to fill you up, you run into all sorts of issues. So I completely agree with you on that. I mean, you really have to figure out yourself to be able to be okay for someone else. I mean, I've only learned this. Listen, I'm almost 50 now. So I've learned this <laughs> through the course of my life and having really bad relationships to be able to get into good ones. And I, you know, still haven't figured it out. Every time I'm in a relationship, I learn more and more to be able to try and have a better one. Um, you know, so which brings us me to, you know, my next question, which is what are the qualities of a successful and healthy relationship? Because I think people want to know how to look for those signs. Cause it's hard sure. to 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 find those when you're like really navigating these people. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I think that's, you know, I mean. Of the many questions that are, that I consider like million dollar questions when it comes to relationships, that's certainly one of them. Mm -hmm. um, you know what what does a successful what's what's a good partner look like? And so that can be a very complicated answer, but the easiest way to answer that is your relationship partner should be your best friend. They should have all the same qualities as, as a best friend. And so you know it should be somebody that respects you, cares for you, supports you, is caring and and kind. Um, it's somebody who you're comfortable with. It's someone you can be yourself with. It's it's this sense of companionship. You like spending time with them. You share laughter together. You just have all these mutual shared interests. You're supportive. Um, you're very compatible. And so we all, I mean, when you say that, it's like, oh, of course we want all those things. But I, I just don't think that when people are actually initially looking for partners, they're optimizing or emphasizing those traits. Mm-hmm. And, and so how, that's, I was going to say, that's the, that's the mistake people make because, you know, you, you shouldn't be trying to date and plan out your relationship for the, the next weekend or the next month or even the next year. It's like, you want to think 50 years into the future. And so relationship scientists have actually asked what they consider to be like expert couples. And so these are folks who have been together happily married for 15 years and they ask them, so what's the secret? What's, what's the thing that has helped you guys stay together? And they say, the number one reason, number one is my partner is my best friend. Right. And the number two reason was, I like my partner. I like my partner for who they are. Um, and you just think like, how many relationships have you seen where it's like, they're together and they have like a certain physical thing between them, but there's not much beyond that. Hmm. And that is not a relationship that's going to last 50 years. So, but that's really interesting because I, I, there's two parts to my next question. So mm -hmm. one has to do with sex, but the other has to do with really liking your partner. I, and I'm speaking from experience here. Sometimes you get into relationships and you find that you end up wanting to change them, right? Or you, you mm -hmm. nitpick things or they nitpick mm -hmm. your things. So you get into a relationship with somebody that you think you like at the beginning and they put, maybe they're putting on an air about who they are, or they want to put on their best face forward, right? For you, because they really like who you are. But then all of a sudden you ask them to change this and you ask them to change that. And they, you know, all of a sudden you're fighting about little things. I mean, you know, all of a sudden you actually don't like who they are and you're asking them to change. What, how is it? Is it okay to ask someone to change? When is it okay to ask somebody to change? Will someone change? Oh, lots of, uh, um, <laughs> <laughs> is it okay to ask? I, I don't even know if it's okay to ask. I mean, I think the ideal relationships are where you and your partner like each other for who you are almost unconditionally. Now, are, that doesn't mean there's not gonna be things that annoy you. There there certainly are. Um, that's, oh, that's inevitable. But like, to ask your partner to change is a little presumptuous. Mm -hmm. It's a little presumptuous to think that you know what's better for them. And it's a little self-centered in, in the sense that you're asking what's best for you and that may not be what's best for them. Now, all that say, you know, all that said, it's hard to change, right? I mean, so whoever you're you're dating has a two decade, probably at least head start on you in terms of, you know, how their personality has been formed, and so the work you're gonna have to do to, you know, turn your partner into like a fixer upper partner 2.0 version of themselves, it, it, it's a lot. Um, and you know, I, I think a lot of times the people who are engaging in that fixer upper kind of approach to their partner. That's a convenient way to 
put your focus externally onto somebody else so you can ignore what's going on with yourself. Sure. Right. And so, you know, like that savior complex of like, I am going to help them. Right. Um, are you though, really? <laughs> because um, are you qualified to do this work? <laughs> a lot of times you are not. Um, and a lot of times the way that you attempt to help people is not super helpful. It, it's it's nagging and complaining and sighing and using a lot of like subtle, what you think are subtle nonverbals. And it's like, you're, you're, that's just not the way to help people. And probably <laughs> triggering of their parents or something. Yes. I mean, if you want to annoy somebody, you can do a lot of those things. Right. And so then you wonder like, I'm trying to help him. And why is he pulling away? Um, well, because what you're trying to do is, is, is annoying. Right. And it, it's, it's fundamentally unfair, right? Because mm -hmm. if you, a lot of times um, you're thinking about what you want to fix in your partner, but then if your partner said to you like, Hey, you're great. I love you. I really do. Except mm -hmm. I would love you to change X, Y, and Z. Your reaction rightfully so would be like, who the hell are you? Like, how dare you? Right. Right. And so we got to, you know, that's something we just don't do nearly enough is like kind of flip the perspective and try to see this request from our partner's eyes. Mm -hmm. And then we'll start to realize it's a little, like I said, it's a little unfair. Right. And actually that just made me think about my friendships um, that are platonic with girlfriends. I don't ask them to change. I love them for who they are. And, right. and, you know, they might annoy <laughs> me with something and I just kind of shut that out or tune it out. And mm -hmm. maybe I don't talk to them for a day and I just let yep. it go. Right. But if it's a yep. boyfriend, it's like the end of the world, right? And I right. an end all be all and I break up with them or whatever, mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. So you, I guess you really have to think about who you want to be in a foxhole with and if it's okay, you know? There, there are some things that I am okay with and not okay with, you know? There, I don't date, you know, people who are addicts. I don't date liars, you know? There are certain things for certain people that are right. okay and certain things that are not okay for different people. Yeah, and it's interesting you bring up your female best friends because I mean there is no more supportive relationship in the world than two female best friends, right? I mean, like they they will each swear that the other person is the literal best person, best human on the planet. Mm -hmm. Um and so, you know, if you think about like what's a model relationship for your romantic relationships, it's it's a female best friend, mm -hmm. right? A, a romantic relationship the ideal is, you know, what female best friends have but someone that you find physically attractive, right? That's really the ideal. Um, and so what happens with those female best friendships is, you know, you're kind of talking about like some of the things like annoy you and just kind of let go is like, there, there's different levels of things that bother us. There are the absolute deal breakers. Like you said, like dating someone's an addict, that's a deal breaker. Then there are things that are like preferences. Like I'd prefer to date someone who's more of a night owl or a morning person or someone that sleeps on a certain side of the bed or doesn't snore. Or the, those are preferences. And those, you know, you can kind of like give, give and take some of those. And then a lot of things really should just fall in the third category, which are, is what Logan Yuri calls uh, permissible pet peeves. <laughs> and so those are just like, you know, I don't like how you load the dishwasher. Like, I don't like that you're a little bit messy and, you know, like the, the standard leaving the toilet seat up kinds of things like those, those stink, but they're, I mean, that who cares at the end of the day? Like if, if you're doing all those other best friend things, like you can let a lot of things go. Right. So, and then to get back to what you were talking about before, where there are couples that you see them and you know, they're having a lot of sex and you think, oh, wow, they're just in the best relationship ever. Are they though? I mean, is there a magic number for, you know, how often people should be having sex? Does that mean they're in the best relationship ever? It, it often does not mean they're in the best relationship ever. Um, and so, you know, it, what's interesting about sex is that we pay a lot of attention to it because it's easy to count. And what's easy to count, we start thinking is really, really important. And so you can, you know, count on your, like, like how many times you and your partner have had sex in the last week or last month. Um, but it's hard to really count all the times they were supportive and listened to you and, and like, you know, made you feel like a better person. Like we, we have a hard time keeping track of that stuff. So we put, we give a lot more importance to sex than we probably should. That said, everybody does kind of want to know, like, am I having as much sex in my relationship as I should? And so... The empirical scientific answer to that is there really is a magic number. And that number is once a week. Um, so as long as partners are having sex once a week, um, the relationship is feels supported and everything's going well, less than that, it, it gets a little problematic. Um, if you're doing, if you're having sex more than once a week, I mean, good for you, but there's not a lot of value added. It's not like, you know, if once a week is good, 
twice is great and three times is amazing. It, it doesn't necessarily work like that. It's like as long as you hit that once a week, um, you and your partner are, are usually going to be doing okay with with sex. And do you believe or is there research that says that being intimate like that brings people closer? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, so it's like some of it is just, um, you know, basic um, like neurochemistry, right? So it's like oxytocin and, and just feeling that sense of closeness to each other. Um, one of the things that it's important to remember about sex though, is that often, again, because it's kind of, it's one of those things that's easy to count and easy to see is that people think of sex as something you put into your relationship. Like if a relationship's not going well, maybe we should have sex more, right? It's like, you know, you, maybe you've even seen like people in sex challenges, like, well, we're going to have sex seven days in a row and that's going to fix everything. Right. Um, what the research shows is that actually makes it worse, right? It's like by forcing yourself to engage in something like that, um, it just, it doesn't lift your mood the way it should. It feels more like a chore. It feels like more of an obligation than something you really want to do. And so it's this mistake that people commonly make, as I said, about seeing sex as something you put in when reality is sex is an outcome. It's an, it's an outbound indicator of how good your relationship is. So if you and your partner are dissatisfied with the frequency or the quality of the sex that you're having, um, really the best answer to that is improve your relationship. Mm. And what would you say to people that are having a hard time where the man wants it much more than maybe the woman or opposite, you know, how, how would you get them back on the same page? Yeah. I mean, I, th I think getting people back on the same page, every relationship problem starts with the same initial solution, which is communication, right? So, you know, both partners have to have to talk it out, what their expectations are, um, and then start having a real honest conversation about maybe why one partner doesn't want to have sex as much as the other. And some of those things are going to be tied back, frankly, to the quality of the relationship. Like we don't do anything together. We're not doing anything fun together. You know, all we do is sit around and that's like, I don't feel sexual towards you because of our routine. Right. And so, you know, both partners, um, you know, and, and this is another standard thing with communication is that, you know, those sex conversations tend to, people tend to view them as like, you know, low sex drive partner versus high sex drive partner. And like, they've got to kind of like fight it out. When the reality is, and this is how couples should think about all communication, is it's it's not me against you, it's us against the problem. Mm -hmm. And so the problem is we have a mismatch in, in our sexual fulfillment. And so how can we both work to figure that out? And so, you know, if you've been in a relationship for any amount of time, you know, communication and compromise, it, it, the two C's. Okay. So yeah, I want to talk about communication for a second because I've been married a couple of times <laughs> and <laughs> I remember in the middle of fights thinking to myself, like I'm trying to get this point across and I'm not being heard. And I know they were probably thinking the same thing. And it's like oil and water. You're not hearing anything. And now that I can step back years and years later, um, I wish, you know, I was given the right tools to be able to get through those moments because you know, if you're in a relationship with somebody and you care, I mean, the whole point mm -hmm. is that you just want to be heard, I'm assuming. And mm -hmm. you you also want, I'm assuming you want to hear what that person's saying, because at the bottom, the end of the road, you guys just want to work it out and get through the night and be in love again, right? So what's the best way to communicate so you can both hear what the other person is saying without blowing everything up? Because at some point, I think you, there's like, a thing where you want to win, you know, you want to win mm -hmm. that fight and be like, I won this, I was right. But how do you get over that? So you don't have to get through that moment. Cause sometimes you want to take a stand and walk out the door and leave. And that's my issue. Like I was always someone who walked away, but if anyone walked away from me, it was like, so awful, you know, like how do you get through those moments? Yeah. I, I think that point you made about wanting to win is a, is a really big part of it. Right. And so, so often we think of our communication and discussions with our partners as a competition, mm -hmm. but what we have to remember is we're really both on the same team. And it, it's, again, it's, it's not you versus me, it's us against the problem. And so when we are approaching things that way, um, we're on the same team. We're on, we're not on the same team with just anybody either. We're on the same team with someone who we consider our best friend ideally, right? And so the place to begin every discussion is from, you know, this place of just extreme positivity, like the benefit of the doubt, like, I love this person, I know they didn't intend to hurt me. I know they're not intentionally trying to be rude, or dismissive, or condescending, or any of those kinds of things like they, 
they they mess up but i also need to let them know that i think that this is a problem and then you know th that is the foundation is huge right i mean that'll solve a lot of communication problems the second thing i would suggest is to avoid impulsive discussions and so try to you know if you have a problem with somebody don't um let it build up don't do that right i what i what i say what i talk about in my book is you know keep small problems small Right. And so what I mean by that is every time something comes up, mention it. Right. And so if you mention the little thing that your partner said, or like they sighed after you asked them to do something and you say like, Hey, you know, what was that about? I thought that was a reasonable request. You can have a, like a tiny little conversation about it that like checks that box and then, then you can move on. But if you're like, no, no, no I don't, I don't want to, I don't want to fight right now. I'm just gonna let it go. Then the next time they do it, same thing. It just becomes easier to let it go, to let it go, to let it go. Um, and then that leads to something I call kitchen thinking, right? It's where now like all the stuff adds up. You haven't forgotten about it and you just keep piling it higher and higher and higher. And then all of a sudden the dam bursts and you start kitchen sinking. You just start throwing everything at them. And so you end up in exactly the situation you described where you have two people who are just kind of like, you know, lobbing all this stuff at each other. No one's feeling heard, but they want to make sure they're they're able to like get their whole list of complaints out to the other person. And the problem is, even if you really authentically want to address your partner's concerns, when they start just lobbing a bunch of stuff at you, you don't know where to start. You don't know what the real problem is. In fact, they themselves probably don't know what the real problem is. Mm -hmm. So you have to keep those small problems small. So many people um, hesitate to get into relationships or stop from moving forward in a relationship because they think that they have to make sacrifices. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, sacrifice is one of those romantic notions when it comes to relationships where it's like, you know, I will give up everything for my partner. And, and that is the, the way to be happy. And oddly enough, what the research shows about sacrifice is, okay, here's, here's the good news. It increases commitment. So the more you and your partner sacrifice for each other, the more committed you become to each other. And so that means you're like, you're locked in, right? I mean, that's a long-term kind of thing. The problem is while it increases commitment, it, it doesn't increase satisfaction. So satisfaction is how happy you are with this person. So you're more locked in, but you're not necessarily happier. I mean, that's not good, mm -hmm. right? And so the real reason that you don't get a lot of happiness out of the sacrifices is that partners miss 50% of the things that you do for them. They just don't know 50%. Like, so they're missing half of what you're trying to do to sacrifice on their behalf. They miss it completely. So you're doing something. They don't say anything. They don't show any gratitude or appreciation. And so it really becomes this recipe for resentment. Mm. And so what I suggest people do when it comes to sacrifice, a different way to think about it is make sure your sacrifices are mutual and minor. And so mutual, you're both making sacrifices. It's not just one person. And the things you're sacrificing should be minor things. Like it shouldn't be major aspects of your identity. It shouldn't be major aspects of your future hopes, dreams, any your core values, any of that kind of thing. It, it should be like minor stuff like, oh, you want to watch Netflix tonight? Okay, fine. Like that's a minor, you know, that, that's a sacrifice, you know, because your partner wants to do that. Like those kinds of things. As And again, it's got to be mutual though, too. Um, you've done a lot of research on self-expansion or the idea that you, your partner should help you grow as a person. Can you talk more about that? Sure. So, I mean, there's a lot of different reasons why people get into relationships. And so um, one of the things that myself and, and a bunch of my colleagues have really focused on is this idea that one of the fundamental motivations for getting into a relationship is to help yourself grow as a person. Mm -hmm. That we want to grow, become more capable, um, learn new roles, skills, abilities, hobbies, interests, all, all kinds of things. Um, and that our romantic relationship partners, that's one of the ways we do it. So when you meet somebody for the first time and you're getting to know each other, you're, you're gaining all this new information. You have somebody to go out and do fun activities with. And so what our research shows is that when people fall in love, when they're in long-term relationships, um, when they're with the right people, it really does help them grow as a person. Uh, now, of course, that's the ideal, right? You find somebody that helps you grow, you help them grow, and like uh, off you go growing together, right? Um, but what we find is that, you know, when you start feeling like your partner isn't able to provide you with enough opportunities for growth and improvement, it's such a fundamental need that you start looking elsewhere. Mm. Like, 
if my partner can't help me become a better person, I'm going to go find someone else who will. And so the research I've done shows you start looking, you, you start, as we say in research terms, paying attention to alternatives, um, which really just means like you start looking at other partners, you start considering other people. Um, we have data that shows that you're more likely to cheat. Um, you're, you, more people do cheat. You're more likely to break up, right? So it's like this idea of self-expansion is, is critical to well-functioning relationships. So you're saying if you don't find a partner that helps you be a better person, you're more likely to cheat. Yes. And you found data for that. Absolutely. Yep. Published. Wow. That is incredible. Yeah. And how, so, you know, it's- How did they come up with that? What's that? How did they come up with that data? They studied different people? Yeah. So, uh, you know, it's actually my, myself and one of my students, you know, we collected data from hundreds of people and, you know, basically asked them about self-expansion in the relationship. Like, you know, how much- does your partner challenge you to become a better person? How much do, does your partner help you discover new things and take on new perspectives? And, you know, a bunch of like the, those kinds of things that like indicate that they're helping you grow as a person. Um, and then we ask them, you know, how likely are you to cheat? We, we've done versions where we ask people, you know, over the past six months, have you cheated on your partner? Um, and the people who have lower self-expansion scores are more likely to cheat and have reported more cheating. Meaning that they were bored in the relationships they were in. It wasn't based on their feelings within themselves. It was with the partner they were with. Yes. Yeah. So, it, you know, it's, it's a boredom, but it's also like, you know, it's, it's a sense of not being fulfilled in your primary relationship that leads you to seek out other alternatives. Mm -hmm. So interesting. My gosh. And yeah. I'm assuming that creates a level of jealousy. What, what are your thoughts on jealousy? Yeah, jealousy for sure. I mean, jealousy is one of those interesting emotions in relationships because the biggest mistake people think with jealousy is that jealousy shows that you care. And it, it shows that you're like, it, it's like a heightened level of devotion and investment in a relationship. And that's just not what it is, right? I mean, so to be fair, I mean, jealousy is an indication that you're, you value something and you're afraid of losing it. So you should be able to, there should be some circumstance in the world to which you could find yourself jealous when it comes to your partner. But that obsessive, suspicious jealousy, where you're always monitoring, like, where were you? What were you doing? Who's that texting you? Those types of jealousy feelings, that's not love, right? I mean, that's controlling, that's dominance, that's, uh, you know, it's, it's actually, you know, a lot of those jealousy feelings actually uh, start from feelings of insecurity. You know, it doesn't it's, that come from past relationships, your own issues from your past experiences. Sometimes they have nothing to do with the relationship you're in. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it's like, you know, we pack our bags full of a bunch of like bad experiences from the past and we just strap that on and bring that, that bad baggage with us. And so, yeah, it comes from a lot of places. You know, a lot of it too is just like um, people who are more jealous have a low perceived mate value. So essentially they just don't think they're that great of a partner. And so they have to constantly monitor the potential that someone's going to steal their partner from them. So how would you suggest people overcome jealousy in a relationship? Yeah, um, it's not easy um, because of where it comes from largely. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of it's got to be trust. And it's got to be, you know, if you're a jealous person and your partner explains to you, like, this is not an issue, you have to trust them, right? And trust is, you know, transparency and consistency over time. And so- they're, you know, hopefully you're with somebody who's transparent and consistent and hopefully it's over time and you have to just start noticing all the reasons why you have to trust your partner because they're there. They're absolutely there. The other thing you have to remember in, in relationships, not, not just in terms of jealousy, but that vulnerability is strength. And so you have to make yourself vulnerable. You have to open up to have a relationship. And the people who are able to be vulnerable, that's not a sign of weakness. That's a sign of strength. It's a sign of confidence. And so you build by building your confidence, building your strength, you make it easier to be more vulnerable um, and, and trust the other person. I want to talk about breakups for a second because everybody's experienced them. Sometimes breakups can be worse than a broken leg. Um, they're so painful. No one wants yep. to go through one. Um, you did a TED talk. Breakups don't have to leave you broken. Um, that have over 2.4 million views, um, which focuses on how breakups can be a good thing. Let's talk about that. Why are they good? Yeah. So breakups can be a good thing. You know, we talked a little bit about self-expansion, how important it is that your relationship helps you grow as a person. 
Um, and so what uh, colleagues and I found in our research was that if you ask people about their relationship and you found that, again, their relationship was providing them insufficient self-expansion, when they broke up those relationships, they felt better, right? So it was essentially addition by subtraction. So that past partner was essentially holding you back from becoming a better person. So by getting rid of them, so by leaving that relationship, you now have opportunities to self-expand, grow, improve outside of that relationship. And so I'm not saying that they were 100% happy, but like when you ask them overall, how did you feel? Most of most people in that situation, they felt as though the breakup was a good thing for them. Right. So like I've been through breakups where, you know, I'll be dating somebody for, let's say, you know, nine months, but four months of that is me trying not to break up with that person or figuring out how not to break up with them or them not to break up with me or, you know, making all sorts of excuses. And then when the breakup happens, you like can't get out of bed for weeks because you're so devastated. And then now that I'm years out of that and I'm thinking about it, it's like, that was so ridiculous, you know, and thank God that I'm out of it because I can look back and see how I grew from that or the opportunities that happened or the guy I met after that or how awful I looked during that because I was so stuck in whatever physical, you know, being I was in then. So I know exactly what you're talking about. And I feel like I know so many people that are in bad relationships right now that just won't leave. What are the signs to get out of a relationship that are just like deal breakers that you know of that people that are in bad relationships right now should like get out of these relationships? Well, I mean, deal, deal breakers are personal to some degree, but like, you know, some of the obvious ones are any kind of, you know, physical or emotional abuse, Yeah, someone not accepting you for who you are, someone trying to change you, um, someone not being supportive of your own beliefs, um, undermining who you are, your relationships with your family, um, dating a narcissist is tough. Right. I mean, that, that, that's a tough one to deal with a, a lot of times as, as a deal breaker. Um, yeah. I mean, I, I think that there's lots of deal breakers that are, and again, it's going to, it's going to vary from person to person, but I think one of the things people need to remember with breakup is that as much as it hurts, you know, like after your, after you experience heartbreak, like, as you just described, like your vision clears, like you do get over it. Like time does heal that a little bit. Um, and the other thing to remember is that great relationships seldom fail, but the bad ones do as they should, mm. not only as they should, but as you should want them to, right. because I, I say it all the time is like, everybody deserves a great relationship. And so it takes two people to make a relationship great. So even if you were the one getting broken up with and you're devastated and you wanted it to work, the thing that you're mourning, the thing that you're sad about losing was probably never actually there in the first place. Yeah because the other person didn't see it. Otherwise they wouldn't have ended the relationship. And so you're not sad about that relationship ending. You're sad about this perfect relationship you want to have that you didn't find it this time. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, something we talk about in coaching is, you know, either you find love, you know, you're gone dating, you're doing a bunch of online dating, either you find love or you learn, right? And you get one step closer to, to learning more about yourself, to learning about the kind of partner you're looking for, to help you find the relationship you really want. And if you're not married, this is why you're dating, right? Because you're trying people on and there's nothing wrong with that. And it's okay to have, to feel like your heart is broken each time. And that's all right, but you have to try it on. You have to love as much as you can so that you can figure out if that's working or not. And, you know, I think it's actually a great thing that you give it your all. And if it doesn't work, you give it your all again, because you should believe in love. And I think it's a great thing, but you eventually, hopefully will find the right one, but you got to keep trying on new people to see what works and what doesn't work and take the lessons out of it. But also what I found from, again, my experience is that what's the hardest thing when you get out of it is like, recovering in this world that you don't know. So like, I was so used to being with this guy that all of a sudden when he's not there, what do I do? I have no plans with anyone. I forget mm -hmm. how to interact with my friends. I have mm -hmm. nothing to do on these evenings that I was fully booked every night on my weekends when I didn't have my daughter, you know? So like explain to people what, you know, some strategies of what to do when you go through a breakup. Cause I think that keeps people in a relationship because they're scared of being alone. 
alone. And sometimes it is the best thing to do to get back into a routine of things you don't even remember that you used to like, because I forgot who I was. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I think that's a really important point, right? Is like people will stay longer in the relationship than they should. And one of the reasons they stay longer is because they don't want to be alone. But really, a lot of times in those not so great floundering relationships, you feel alone while you're in a relationship. Yeah. And so what's like, what's the difference then at that point, right? I mean, you feel alone in your relationship. So then being being alone, you now actually have a chance to find somebody else. The other thing that to know about breakup is that people when researchers have looked at this, right? So when they ask people to predict, like, how are you going to feel when you break up? People assume they're going to be much more devastated than they actually are, because then the researchers say, like, how bad are you going to feel? And people are like, I'm going to be terrible. It's going to be awful. And then the researchers actually follow them and wait for them to end that relationship and then say, like, how do you feel? And I mean, they don't feel it's not like they feel wonderful, but it's like they just people don't feel as bad as they think they're going to. And I think that's really important for people to remember to help keep in perspective so that what they're assuming this terrible devastation is going to be it's it's a bigger thing that's looming in their imagination that then is reality so you're asking about you know what you can do post breakup to help i mean I, I think that experience that you described about you know your world's kind of different and you have all like there's almost like this vacuum like you lost a bunch of things mm-hmm. um in that in those situations one of the things i would suggest is a slight reframe where you, instead of looking at it as a vacuum you look at it as it as an opportunity now it's it's like a blank slate, right? You've, you've erased everything. Now you get to fill it in with all the things that should be your very, very top priorities, whatever those things happen to be. Like you get, it's like hitting a reset button almost and, you, and getting to start over. Um, and so one of the things that I've looked at in some of my own research, and that was in the TED talk that you referenced, is this idea of rediscovery of the self. Um, because as you said, you know, part of what happens is like you kind of forget who you are. And so rediscovery of the self is really what we found to be the best thing to help with a breakup is essentially like go back to who you were before the relationship. Because in every relationship, we kind of like let little pieces of ourselves go or we de-emphasize them or we hold them back or, or we make sacrifices that maybe we shouldn't. So it's like of all the things you can possibly do to make yourself feel better after a breakup, getting back to who you were before you were in that relationship, that rediscovering your past self is what we found to be the best. And do you have any advice on how to not pick the same type of guy or girl over and over and over so you keep making the same mistakes? Yeah, I mean, one of the best things to do is take some time off, right? So if you hop from relationship to relationship and and you never really kind of get that chance to be alone, you're never gonna do the necessary self-reflection that you need to gain the insights that you're asking about, right? And so with that time alone, assuming you're going to take, take a break, you need to first be comfortable with being alone so that that way you want a relationship. You don't need a relationship. And there's a very big difference. And so a lot of that is, is building your own confidence. Um, and then also really thinking very hard about the type of relationship you really want. And you want to do this without any person in mind, without some, some potential person you might date or someone you are dating, like, who is the person you want? And it's not the person you want today, tomorrow, or this week. It's who do you want to be with in five years, 10 years, and 50 years? What are the qualities that person's going to have? And so, so to kind of like complete complete the loop, you know, it, it's those best friend qualities that we talked about earlier. Um, now I saw on, uh, is it lovestrategies.com that you're the love yep. chief love scientist? Yep. Chief love scientist. Yep. That's a fun title. Um, (laughs) I saw that you said to move slow in a new relationship. Why is Yeah. So one of the keys to dating and in any new relationship is to slow things down. And so this goes to what you were kind of describing before about like dating is about collecting information. And we have to remember relationships are a game of incomplete information. I don't know everything about you. You don't know everything about me. I also actually don't know everything about myself and neither do you know everything about yourself, but that's a whole separate issue. But like the only way for us to find things out is by dating, by, by spending time together. And so if you date too fast, you allow all of the physical, like animal brain sides of you to override your more logical sense. 
So if you date quick, it's going to be, you know, those things like love bombing and just how hot the other person is and the feelings of chemistry and like all those like fluttery stomach feelings that, you know, we love about falling in love. Those tend to make us, uh, you know, they say love is blind. It's also deaf, dumb, and a little, you know, stupid. Right. And so to, to counteract that, you want to be slow about it. And so, you know, spread it out over weeks, months, and just use all of that time to gather more information. Now, what I will tell you is that, you know, one of the things in, in coaching at Love Strategies, you know, this is, we call this pacing. And one of the things that people struggle with is, but if, if I slow things down, he's not going to like me anymore. And it, what, we find is, okay, that's true if he didn't really want to be with you as a long-term partner, mm. right? Like, so if you're slowing things down and he's like, forget this, I'm out of here. He wasn't who you were looking for anyway. He wasn't in it for a long-term fulfilling committed relationship. He was in it for short-term fun, right? If he is in it for a long-term committed relationship and you're slowing things down, it's a little absence makes the heart grow fonder phenomenon. Like, you know, the, the people start wanting what they can't have. And so it only strengthens the feelings. It, it doesn't weaken them. It's so interesting. You're talking about this because I've never had a relationship that way. I go on a date and I'm like, this is the guy mm -hmm. that night. And I start dating them. And then if I go on a date and I don't have any chemistry, that's it. I mean, I, I don't even know how to date uh, in a very slow manner. So sure. I, talk to someone like me about <laughs> learning how to do that, because I would think that that would mean I don't have chemistry with them. I wouldn't even know how to date somebody in a slow, long-term manner because I just date thinking, oh, he knows me so well. We get each other. I feel comfortable with him. Otherwise I think, forget it. This didn't work. I would never go on a second date with him. Yeah. So, uh, I mean, a lot of those chemistry signs that we're talking about, it, it's, those are really more superficial types of things. I mean, a lot of that chemistry comes from physical things. It, it's, it's kind of a feeling and it's things that are short lived and don't necessarily have long-term implications for the future. Mm -hmm. Right. And so dating slow is you're still going to automatically have those visceral kinds of responses to people. And you, you know, you're still going to feel chemistry, but the thing is chemistry can develop mm -hmm. like people can develop chemistry over time. There's, there's certainly people in your life. I'm sure that, you, you know, at very first it, you didn't hit it off amazingly. And then over time, you know, something has can develop the things that are harder to develop over time are partners who have good, stable personalities who are good listeners. Those a lot of those best friend characteristics. So those are the things that, you know, if you want to, if you're interested in a long-term stable relationship, you want to optimize for those more, what we call companionate love factors and not so much of the passionate love factors because the passionate love, the chemistry, all that kind of stuff, it fizzles, right? And so a lot of times if you're dating that way, if you're dating on those qualities, the chemistry stuff, you probably end up in a lot of relationships that start off really great and that six months-ish or so start to just kind of die out um, and they just don't have the same kind of staying power that other relationships have. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I mean, listen, I'm single. So what do, what do I know about? But, you know, the interesting thing is I prefer to date online at this point because mm -hmm. I will say that the nice part of dating online, which I become really good at, is I'm able to figure out a chemistry that has nothing to do with a physical chemistry. Yes. I'm able to tell what I call if somebody gives good phone or if they have a good energy about them. And I can mm -hmm. tell if they're responsive, if they're responsible, if they're, um, you know, if they're funny, if they're interested, engaged, and um, I've never met them. I've never seen them. And you can go on a picture and see what they look like, but you can't see their mannerisms, right? You can't see they, how they hold a fork, how they chew, how they talk. And sometimes Obviously, you know, that has to do with chem physical chemistry and you might fall for somebody based on those things, but you also might not like somebody based on those things. But if you are speaking to somebody online and you really fall for somebody, that's a totally different chemistry. And I really like dating online that way, because if you 
find that you really like someone enough that you're almost aching to meet them, you mm-hmm. really, I think you really have something there. And the last couple of times that I've dated somebody long-term, and when I say long-term, I, I mean for years, it's mm-hmm. through dating online and it's because mm-hmm. it worked that way. And when I met them physically, they may have not been my type. Like I would have never gone up to them in a bar or said yes, if I met them in person, but I, you know, the physical had nothing to do with it. You know, I was attracted to them based on who they were. So their physical, I became attracted to them. You know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I find it interesting you're using the term chemistry for that, but because we would call that dating intentionally, right? Mm -hmm. So when you're dating online, you have a real opportunity to date intentionally, which is really look into that person, really see if your personalities are going to be compatible. See if you're going to have those kind of commonalities and, and things like that so that you don't overvalue some of those physical attributes. And so, you know, what you're describing is exactly what we would suggest is, you know, optimize for those personal, you said responsible, responsive, like those are good relationship qualities. And so the nice thing about online dating is it levels the playing field for the more relationship oriented guys. And because dating in real life, like meeting people out at parties and bars really gives, it makes it a lot easier for the highly charismatic narcissist type of guys to do better because they're the ones that are super comfortable going up to people and like picking people up in those situations and having those conversations. But like your standard relationship oriented, nice guy, like he's not going to do that out in the world. Like as we call it, say dating organically, but like online, those people shine. Right. And particularly if they're just like slightly introverted, like those are some of the best conversationalists in the world, but it's hard to meet them in other contexts than online. And so online dating has you know, as we say a lot of times at Love Strategy, it, it's it's a tool. And so, you know, you start dating online, but then you want to meet people in, in, in real life as soon as you possibly can. But like, you can do a lot of screening um, through online dating. Right. And let's talk about energy for a second. Like I was just talking about, I have a hard time with my energy. Um, I come across very alpha. And sometimes mm-hmm. I think that gets me into trouble um, because I find that a feminine energy is weak, but I've been told by men that it's too much and it's actually not attractive. What are your thoughts on that? <laughs> yeah. So this is actually something, you know, we talk a lot about, um, Adam LaDolce, who, who is the founder of love strategies. He, he talks a lot about leaning into your feminine energy, mm-hmm. um, particularly because the, the women that come to coaching for us are much like yourself, you know, suit confident, capable, smart, successful. And so you tend to have more of this alpha kind of way about you. Um, now for a lot of guys that can be intimidating and frankly, a turnoff, right? You can, you can just flat out scare a lot of guys away. Um, and so what we teach in in the program is leaning into your feminine energy. And so, you know, leaning back, letting him take charge, asking for help on occasion, right. And just, (laughs) but not at first, at first. Right. Mm-hmm. And so this is not like, I'm, we're not, I'm not saying there'll be a damsel in distress or anything like that, but it's like, you know, you help him, he helps you like, and so it'll eventually balance out. But at first, at least like lean back. So, you know, I, I say what I say all the time is step back so he can step forward. Mm-hmm. And so give him a chance because, you know, it, it again goes back to this idea of, you know, gathering more information. So rather than being like the, the go-getter planning of everything and doing everything, leading the conversation, just kind of lean back and see how he reacts because okay. that's going to ultimately give you more information. So be a little more girly is your advice. Eh, I, I don't know if it's a girly necessarily. It's just like, let, you know, your relationship long-term is always going to be a give and take, mm-hmm. right? So at first give a little more. Okay. Um, what else do I want to ask you? Um, what, okay. So what are the, a few more questions. What are the qualities that men like most or men find attractive the most that women overlook that we don't know about some secrets for us? So that men find attractive that women don't know about. Um, I think it's just, it's, it's being laid back and fun, like being low maintenance, Right. And so, you know, like that's just kind of like going with the, fl- it's, it's funny that I say that right after saying like lean back a little bit, because it, it is some of that. It's like go with the flow, not be so like hard charging and planning everything out to the nth degree and just kind of, you know, be a little, be a little bit more carefree. I would say that that's one of them for sure. 
Okay. And is that, does that go into the same thing as behaviors that scare men off or there other behaviors that might scare men off besides that? Not that that would scare a man off, but. <laughs> yeah. What, you know, in terms of behaviors that would scare a man off, I mean, one of the things for sure is um, playing games, like playing games is, is for some reason that there, there's a lot of people out there that think the way to really handle relationships are like these like little tests and these little games, like, you know, let's see if he'll give me attention. And so let's see how long it'll take for him to text me, or I'm going to start a fight to see how he reacts. And so, you know, those kinds of things are just terrible, right? Nobody wants to deal with that stuff. Um, one of the other big ones is talking excessively about past relationships and or complaining about dating and relationships, right? So one of the biggest turnoffs is, you know, you, you sit down, you're on a, in a first date, you're, you're online dating and the person sits there and like, oh, don't you just hate online dating? Like, isn't this the worst? And it's like, that's a, it's a weird way to start that conversation, right? Because we're both online dating. And so it's, you're, you're starting from a place of negativity and, you know, frankly, we don't like negative people. And so it seems like a natural way to start a conversation because it's a shared interest, commonality kind of thing. But it's also starting from the wrong place in terms of, you know, we shouldn't be starting our relationship off from, from a place of negativity. We want to start more from positivity. I guess my last question would be, what is the most misunderstood thing about relationships that you have found in your research that you would want to get across? Um, one of the most misunderstood things. I would say, I already kind of said the thing about not completing you. I, I think that's a big one. But I, I think one of the things I think people get make a mistake about, particularly when it comes to dating and, and particularly women is you don't want to decide how you feel about somebody based on how they feel about you. Right? Like, so don't decide that you like a person because they like you. That's not enough. That's not enough to carry a relationship. A relationship takes two people working together. And so you can't be the one that does all the work. Right. And so just because somebody likes you, you have to you have to approach relationships from this place of confidence. And so the fact that they like you isn't special because of course they like you. You're a likable person. Mm -hmm. Why wouldn't they like you? And that sounds really, really simple, but it's it goes back to self-confidence and self-esteem. And it, it starts a whole cycle of things where if you don't have that confidence, if you haven't done that work, that what we call in love strategies, making yourself relationship ready, you're going to attract the wrong kind of person. They're going to treat you poorly in a way that you're going to accept because in some ways you're going to think you deserve it. And then it's going to lower your expectations for relationships. And you're going to think, oh, all relationships are bad like this. And then you're going to think, I can't do any better than these bad relationships. And you're going to keep finding yourself in this pattern of bad relationships with people who don't treat you very well. And that's only going to lower your confidence and self-esteem further. And then that cycle is just going to keep going and going and going. And it's, you know, when it, every time when I, I give talks about this, um, I, I mention this, this cycle idea and people, you know, I, I think a lot of times the reaction is like, well, who would do that? Like, that's terrible. The problem is it happens subtly. It happens slowly. Mm -hmm. So you don't feel that confident about yourself and your partner makes an offhanded remark is just says like, gosh, you're so dumb sometimes. And you're like, yeah. Like, instead of saying like, wait, what did you say? Like, how dare you? Like, that's not okay. You don't talk to me like that. You're like, okay. And you just kind of let it go. And then, you know, by them being able to say that it kind of emboldens them to like treat you just a little bit worse and a little bit worse. And it's like, it doesn't happen all at once, but just little by little, bite by bite, um, it, it just starts really eating away at you right. and you just, you don't realize it's happening. And so, you know, I, I think that's something people need to realize. Right. And people end up losing their sense of self and this is how you get down a slippery slope. Yeah, for sure. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, all of this has been super interesting. I thank you so much for your time. You guys can find more of this on lovestrategies.com and um, I hope to see you again. Thank you so much. Thanks so much, Rachel. Thank you for listening to the Misunderstood Podcast with host Rachel Yucatel, executive producer Kelly Brink. 
If you have an episode suggestion or would like to reach out for collaboration and sponsorship opportunities, email us at infomisunderstoodpodcast at gmail.com. That's infomisunderstoodpodcast, all one word, at gmail.com. Be sure to like and subscribe everywhere you get your podcasts and leave us a five-star rating and review because it helps the show so much. Watch full videos of each and every episode of Misunderstood on YouTube at Misunderstood Podcast. See you next time. Misunderstood.